Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you this morning. This morning, week 11 out of 12. Seems like it's gone by quickly. And it's a joy to, to sit, to learn, and to know God more. This morning, we are knowing the God who is love. And so let's pray as we get into our time together. Father, we thank you for these weeks you have given us opportunity, um, these mornings to come and to, to know more about you. Thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to your people. Father, as we have come and many can testify that you are a God who is love because we have experienced your love. You have demonstrated it through your son, Jesus. Father, would you teach us afresh this morning that we would grow in awe of you, of who you are, that we would praise, honor, and glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. lifted up his eyes and behold, there was a very stately palace before him, the name of which was Beautiful. So he made haste and went forward that if possible, he might get lodging there. Then said Christian to the doorkeeper, what house is this? And may I lodge here tonight? The doorkeeper answered, this house was built by the Lord of the hill and he built it for the relief and security of pilgrims. Those words are found in The Pilgrim's Progress, a book that has been outsold only by the Bible and translated into over 200 languages. In the form of an allegory, it describes the journey of a pilgrim named Christian from the city of destruction to heaven. In it, we read of the many ups and downs, the triumphs and struggles that are common to the Christian life. Strangely, the book was written from a prison cell by a man named John Bunyan, a man whose only crime was preaching the gospel outside of the state church. He could have been released if he would merely have compromised his beliefs, yet nothing could move John Bunyan to do so. Why such resolve? Why such determination? It was rooted in something that occurred in the life of John Bunyan, which brought him from being a notorious blasphemer to one who walked with the living God. I'm standing on the steps of Houghton House near Bedford, England. It is rumored that this once grand home of a godly man was the original source for Bunyan's Palace Beautiful that I mentioned in the quote. Like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's journey from destruction to spiritual life was full of dangers. God had to teach John Bunyan many things before he found the true relief and security of a spiritual pilgrim. 
Thankfully, his journey was documented in this little book, his autobiography entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That journey is what we'll be considering together today. Our story begins here in Elstow, a small English village near Bedford. John Bunyan was born in 1628 to Thomas and Margaret. Thomas was a tinker, a mender of pots and pans. Bunyan describes his family as poor, and his formal education ended at age nine because his father needed his help in the family business. As a boy, John was reckless and rebellious, and though he was young, he had few equals in swearing, lying, and blaspheming. When John was 15 years old, his mother died. His father remarried within weeks. John was full of anger and despair. He wanted nothing to do with God. At age 16, John left home and joined the army. After three years of service, he returned, started his own business as a tinker, and married a young lady whose name is never given. Though very poor, she brought two treasures to the marriage, Christian books from her godly father, the plain man's pathway to heaven, and the practice of piety. Bunyan's wife read to him and even managed to get him to attend church with her. And for a time, he was pleased with his new religion. Until one of the women of the town, who had a terrible reputation herself, told John that he was the most ungodly person she'd ever heard and that he would ruin all the young men in the town if they spent time with him. John Bunyan was truly bothered by this rebuke, so he cleaned up his speech to the point that he even shocked himself. Prior to this, Bunyan said he didn't know how to say a sentence unless it was preceded and followed by cursing. He began to read his Bible. People praised him for his external morality, but this self-righteous religion couldn't quiet his fears for long. One of his favorite church activities was to ring the bells here at the church of St. Mary and St. Helena. But he began to fear that he was just a hypocrite. He imagined that God would punish him by having the rope break and the bell fall on him. He tried to quiet his fears by positioning himself here under a strong wooden beam. Still afraid, he then moved to the entrance of the bell tower, pulling the rope from there. But he feared that God would cause the tower itself to fall on him. Eventually, he gave it up altogether. Having sacrificed this responsibility, he said, I thought that no man in England could please God better than I. Not understanding God's character, he still hoped to find peace by his own efforts. We are at St. John's Church in Bedford to talk about two important events in the life of John Bunyan, which occurred in 1650. His wife gave birth to their first child, Mary, who was born blind. And the first independent church of Bedford was formed under a godly pastor named John Gifford. They met here. The formation of the church is probably something Bunyan took little notice of until one day when he was about his normal business, he overheard something that changed his life forever. Bunyan was walking through the town of Bedford and came upon a small group of ladies sitting in front of a house talking about the things of God. John thought that he, being a religious man himself, might join in with them, but he was surprised to find that they spoke of things that he did not understand. They spoke of the new birth, of the work of God on their hearts, how they had come to be convinced of their miserable spiritual condition, and how God had drawn them to himself through the work of the Spirit and the promises of the gospel. 
they spoke of the struggles of the Christian life and how God had sustained them with his word. They spoke with such happiness and with such an acquaintance of the scriptures that he felt as if they had found a new world of which he knew nothing. They were citizens of another kingdom, and he was not. This shook all of Bunyan's Christless religion. He knew nothing of the new birth. He was unacquainted with the deceitfulness of his own heart, and the promises of Scripture were without comfort for him. His religion was merely a combination of duties and ceremonies. His heart remained unchanged. Their words haunted him, yet Bunyan came as often as he could to hear the women speak. He was convinced that they spoke the truth, and he desired the happiness of knowing the true God as they did. John Bunyan was tormented. He would find peace and then be despondent again. At one point, he was tempted to turn his back on Christ altogether, and in his heart, he said he would. He became convinced he had committed the unpardonable sin. After months of soul anguish, he found peace by resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He said, I never saw those heights and depths in grace and love and mercy as I saw after this temptation. Great sins do draw out great grace. He joined the independent church in Bedford and spent many hours with its pastor, John Gidford, at his home here behind me. In time, it became evident that John Bunyan was a gifted preacher and he was appointed to preach the gospel by his church. He continued his work as a tinker and traveled the countryside preaching wherever and whenever he could. In 1658, John and his wife had their fourth child, a son named Thomas. The delivery damaged the mother's health and she died shortly afterward. John was heartbroken. He was a 30-year-old widower with four children. Eventually, he remarried. Her name was Elizabeth and she was a godly and courageous woman. By grace, this week, you too will have an opportunity to acquaint yourself with the God who saved John Bunyan, the chief of sinners. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes, To know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. And the New Testament sets forth this knowledge not as the privilege of a favored few, but as a normal part of ordinary Christian experience. And I think we can say that the scriptures certainly agree. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jude wrote, Keep yourself in the love of God. But how does a Christian keep himself or herself under the constant influence of divine love? It's not easy. I think we all have to say that too often our hearts have cried out like Charles Wesley in his hymn and said to God, O love divine, how sweet thou art. When shall I find my willing heart all taken up by thee? This week you've had an opportunity to investigate one of the most mysterious of all of God's attributes, his love. And I hope by now that you have seen the benefit of approaching the love of God as it's connected with other attributes of God's greatness and goodness. Instead of being a weightless feather that bumps against your life when someone says, God loves you, when we see love in its proper context, when we see love as one aspect of the immensity and the 
perfection of God. It's like a wrecking ball against our pride. Think of it like this. Think of a train with many cars, a freight train, and each car in the train is an attribute of God. Every time you study a new attribute, you add a, train, a car to that train. So by the time we get to the love of God, we, we already have a string of cars and now the love of God is added. And when we study the love of God, it comes crashing against our indifference, our doubts, like being hit by a freight train. To finish our week-long study of God's love, we're going to come to an extraordinary passage. It contains one of the most mysterious statements about God's love for His people. And it also contains one of the most practical explanations for how we can live on that love. It's found in John chapter 15 in verses 9 through 11. But before I read that, I want to give you the context. Jesus is speaking to the 11 disciples. Judas has already left. It is the last talk he will have with them before his crucifixion. Now these men have left everything to follow Christ, but they have always had him there physically. Now Jesus says to them, he will send them as sheep among wolves, but they will be required to follow him by faith. He will not be there physically with them. Now, while that must have been discouraging to them, it is very encouraging to us because it is exactly the path that we have to walk. Listen to what Christ says in John 15, beginning in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. I want us to slow down and consider these words. First, at the heart of this passage is a command. Abide in my love. Rest in my love. Build a little house and camp out in my love. Hold yourself in the environment of my love. Now, don't mistake this passage. Don't miss the weight of these words. Some commands that come to us from Christ are so sweet and so enjoyable that you will be tempted by the enemy to think that they're optional. But this is a binding command from a sovereign king. You've studied his sovereignty. You owe him complete obedience in this. As much as you owe him obedience in any command. And if you neglect this, you will be guilty of sinning against your Savior. And if you neglect this command, you will bring dishonor on him. The command is supported by an explanation. So he doesn't just tell us to abide in his love. He gives us a very clear explanation of what kind of love we're abiding in and how we're to do it. To abide in the love of Christ will require more of us than positive thinking or than willpower. We're talking about a real, daily experience of the love. And it will require real changes in every Christian. The explanation is given in this passage in the form of three comparisons. So let's go back and read those words again and notice the comparisons. First, just as... The Father has loved me. I have also loved you. That's the first comparison. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. That's the second comparison. These things I have spoken to you 
so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's the third comparison. So these are very precise. These are very exact. The same kind of love, the same way of experiencing the love, and the same result of love, joy. Now let's start with the third one. Why does Christ say this to us? Joy. The Christian life is lived in a hostile environment. Everything around us, in a sense, forms a, a poisonous atmosphere that, that causes our heart to be distracted or cold. It clouds the spiritual realities before our eyes. And not only that, but the Christian finds this strange development in our own heart. Think of it. The longer a Christian walks with God, the better the Christian knows God. The better that the Christian gets to know God, the better the Christian will know himself or herself. And the better that you know yourself, the more difficult it is to believe that a holy God that knows you better than you know you could love you. So this doubt, this fear becomes like a shadow that attends us all the way of our journey. Christ explains these things about his love and the path of that love and how we can experience it in order that we might have his joy. Not just any joy, his joy. My joy, my joy in you, and your joy made complete. The joy that the Son of God experienced as a man on earth, as he lived in the enjoyment of his Father's love for him, is the same joy that he is offering to his followers. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage. In chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, in this great final discussion with his disciples, Jesus is going to say a number of things that are very shocking to those followers. But especially in chapter 14, it's very clear. He says things that they find hard to believe or to understand, and they interrupt him. Let me give you a few examples. Look back at chapter 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Stop. Thomas interrupts and says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? He's confused. In John 14, verse 7, Christ says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Stop. Philip interrupts and says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. How can Christ say that you've seen the Father? In verse 21 of chapter 14, Christ says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, stop, interrupts, not Judas Iscariot, and he says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, in these three examples, Christ says things that are so shocking that they feel they have to interrupt him. But I want you to notice this. In chapter 15, when he says, I'm going to give you my joy, no one interrupts him. They don't say to him, Jesus, you're the man of sorrows. You're acquainted with grief. Even this evening, we are being hunted by your enemies. What, what joy is it that you're talking about? We've lived with you for three years in every circumstance. We haven't seen joy. 
They don't interrupt him because they understand exactly what he's saying. They have lived with him for three years, and they have seen an undercurrent of divine joy in the God-man while he lives in the, ex in the enjoyment of the Father's love, in the experience of the Father's love, he is constantly filled with a deep happiness. And when he says to them, I will give you my joy, they know exactly what he's talking about. So that's the first comparison that helps us with this command. Abide in my love. Why? My joy is going to be given to you. That brings us to the second point. Where does this joy come from? What is the source of it? Here's the second comparison, the love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in that love. What kind of love? Well, there are many aspects to love, aren't there? But we have here in this passage a very strict statement. This passage interprets what type of love the Father loved the Son with and the Son loves the Christian with. These are the same. The same love that the Son receives from the Father, the Christian receives from the Son. So what kind of love does the Father have for the Son? Think of it. The Son of God was never loved with mercy, was He? Mercy is the kind of love you show to someone who deserves wrath. And you don't give them what they deserve. The Son of God was never loved with the love of grace. Grace is the love you give to someone who doesn't deserve and you give them something good they don't deserve. So Jesus is not saying to his disciples, I'm going to leave you, but don't worry. You can have joy because God is going to continue to show you mercy and grace. He could have said that. That would have been true. What he's talking about here is a love of delight. Matthew chapter 3 at the beginning of his ministry, we read this. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased it's not the only time God says it. The Father's affection rests satisfied on the Son as the object of His perfect delight. The old theologians described it as the love of complacency, but we don't use that word in that way anymore. So we would say the love of satisfaction. God's love is not looking for anything more in Jesus Christ. He is satisfied. We know a little bit about this kind of love even in our lives. We walk past our children's bedrooms. We see them asleep. Regardless of how they behave that day, the parent looks at the little child asleep and there is a love that is in the heart. It is the love of delight. You are just happy that they're yours. You're not waiting for them to get out of bed and do what you said in order to love them. This is how the Father loves the Son. He is content. He is satisfied. He is not looking for anything more from the Son. And here's the shocker. Just as, also, just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. The same love that Jesus Christ receives from the Father, delight, is what he gives to his people. Of course, this is the triune love of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit together, but it is channeled here through Jesus. Does the Christian not need mercy? Yes, we need mercy. Does the Christian not need grace? Well, of course we need grace. But what Jesus is saying before he leaves the disciples tonight is that there is something more than mercy. There is something more than grace. There is the kind of love that he has enjoyed every day on planet earth. 
and he will give that to them. There is delight. God has chosen in eternity past, we know, to love his people with the same love with which he loves his son. He has sent his son to do everything that is required for that kind of love to reach his people. Settle the matter, Christian. The love of God, the delight of God in you is not based on anything you're doing right now or not doing. Jesus presently from heaven regards every believer with the same perfect satisfaction and delight with which his father regards him. Now that's difficult to believe. I think we could believe this. I know that God loves me with mercy because I see that in the cross, but I don't think that God could delight in me. I don't think that God's really happy to have me in his family. Well, maybe he will be when I'm in heaven and it's all complete and all sin is eradicated. Sounds reasonable, but it's a lie. And it is one of the oldest tricks of the enemy. It's a work-based righteousness. God loves me because I'm going to do better tomorrow. And it gives place to your human pride. The reason that God loves me is I'm trying harder. And it steals the glory of God in redemption. We say to ourselves, I will be the object of God's delight when I, when I become better. Remember the source of God's love for you. You studied it this week. One writer says it this way, God has drawn all his reasons for loving you from within himself. So you can search the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find any passage in which Jesus describes why the Father loved you. It's nothing about you that attracted God down through the ages. God's reason for loving those who once were his enemies is in himself, not in the enemy. But now that God has chosen to love and sent his son, having finished the great work of redemption, the sinner is placed in the son and clothed with the son's righteousness, with his beauty. And all that God would demand of the sinner to be the object of his infinite delight has been provided by Christ. Think of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 in light of this. He, God, made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin on our behalf. He becomes ugly. So that we might become the righteousness of God, beautiful, in him. He has made us lovely with the loveliness of his son. Or like the hymn that we sing, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. So God sees each believer always and only in the context of Christ's perfect moral beauty. And God is free. The one being who only delights in what is perfect is free to delight in the imperfect Christian without looking for something more from you, without saying to you, I'm just about to the point that I can really delight in you, but tomorrow you're going to have to find a new gear. You're going to have to do a little better. So the Christian anchors the soul here. No matter how I'm doing at this present moment, if I am Christ, really, if I am in Christ and he is in me, then Jesus is presently delighting in me with the same love with which the Father delights in him. So that's the second comparison that helps us with the command, the same type of love. But the question still remains, how? How do I keep myself in that love tomorrow morning? 
And that leads us to the third comparison, the path. The good news is this, that Jesus maps this out for us. Not just with words to explain it, but because he tells us that, it, that just as he obeyed the Father and he was abiding in the Father's love, so we have to obey him and we will abide in his love. So it's not just words, it's his life. It's his example. In the same way he experienced the Father's love, we will experience the Son's love. Or we could say it this way. The Son's obedience to his Father is the pattern for the Christian if they wish to abide consciously or rest in the Son's love daily. So we're talking about the fruit of God's love, aren't we? We're talking about the fruit of the cross, not the root. We're not talking about what causes God to love me. We're talking about the effect of God loving me, that I am able to walk in the continual warmth and experience of his reconciled heart because of Christ. But we have to agree, once we say all of that, we must agree that the scripture is clear that there is an unbreakable link between walking in harmony with God, obedience, and experiencing the joy that comes from being the object of the Father's delight. That was true of Jesus Christ, the God-man on earth. The only begotten had to walk in harmony with his Father in order to enjoy the daily experience of the Father's delight. And he did perfectly. Now, if that was required of the firstborn, do you think that the adopted children are going to be able to come to God and say, well, we didn't think that that was really required. We, we thought that was just optional. Let's consider this in a very practical way. What does the obedience of Jesus look like? I don't mean he preached in one town, got on a donkey, rode to another town, ate with his disciples, taught a lesson, went to bed, got up early, read the Bible, preached again. I mean, that's probably not what God's going to require of you. So we want to get under the surface. What about the heart of Christ as he determined to do the Father's will? What about the motives? And we're very grateful that God has in the Gospel of John given us so many glimpses into the heart of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a few examples. What about the purpose of Jesus, the aim or the ambition of Christ? What was that and can you follow it? Imagine Jesus waking each morning, turning his heart and mind to his Father. Why are you getting up this morning, Jesus? Why are you putting your clothes on, having breakfast and going out to do what you're going to do? And he explains it in John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The ambition of the Son was to please the Father. To Him, the will of His Father was the one infinitely pure and desirable thing. And loving the Father meant that obedience was not a heavy task. Christian, you can follow Him. You can say, by the grace of God, I'm waking up this morning to do His will, not mine. What sustained Jesus in this life of obedience? What was his food spiritually? Well, we have two passages that describe that, John 4 and Matthew 4. In John 4, verse 34, we read this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, that requires he will know what the Father wants, and so he has to interact with Scripture. We see that in his life, but listen to what he says in Matthew 4. He answered Satan in the temptation and said, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Take those two together. Christ is telling us this is real living. To wake up and to hear from God. And then to do it. That's life. We could describe Jesus' entire human life with these two phrases. I must be about my father's business, he said as a boy, and I delight to do his will. I must, I delight. The Old Testament prophesied that Christ would be like this in Isaiah 50. We have a passage where it shows the Messiah speaking 600 years before he's actually born. And this is what he says. He, speaking of God the Father, he awakens me, the Messiah, morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned, as a student, a pupil. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Every day Christ is awakened. Every day the Father opens his ears. Every day the Son gives the Father a complete response and he enjoys the delight of God. Think of the way that his obedience was shown in his words. John chapter 7, my words are not mine, but his who sent me. John chapter 8, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now imagine, when his followers heard him speak, what did they say about his teaching? You, you have words of life. When his enemies heard him speak, they come back and they report, no man ever spoke like him. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, could have been the greatest teacher ever on his own merits. He is sinless. He is the perfect student of Scripture. He has an unclouded intellect. He understands sin. He understands the human predicament. But he refuses to say anything on his own initiative. What my Father has given me to say, it's my joy to say those things. Even the nearness of God that he enjoyed daily is connected with his obedience. In John chapter 8, we read this in verse 29. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Now, he's not saying this as son of God. He's saying this as son of man. He could have said, I am the second person of the Trinity. Of course, I enjoy the fellowship of my Father. But instead, he says... This is how I have enjoyed the fellowship of the Father all these days on earth. I have always been pleased to do His pleasure. Each verse that I've read, there's no excuse for a Christian, by the grace of God, to neglect that pattern. Same love. The Father's love for the Son. Delight. The Son now has for the believer. Same path. Obedience. Same result. Joy. Now, let's apply this to just one day of our life. We wake up, and immediately, immediately, before your feet hit the floor as you get out of bed, there's an illegitimate choice placed right before you, and it looks so reasonable. Who do you want to live for today? You or or Jesus? And then the whisper comes, you know, you gave Jesus Sunday, and you, you give your family so much time. You give your employer so much time. When do you get anything? What do you want to do with your life today? And the Christian has the opportunity of looking to God by faith, seeing this everlasting love crashing against your life and saying to that temptation, no, 
I'm going to wake up for love of Christ. I'm going to have breakfast for love of Christ. I'm going to get dressed for love of Christ. And I'm going to go and do my work today for love of Christ. I have gotten up today to do His will, not mine. Well, to do that, you're going to have to know what He really does want you to do. And that means you're going to have to study Scripture. So you get up in time to open this book. And you kneel before this book. You're sitting by faith before the throne of your Father in heaven. And you say to Him, say whatever you want to say. I'm listening. And what about the simple things like the way you talk today? At work? Phone calls? At home? I mean, these are common things for us. But think, when you consider the path of Christ, you will be careful to speak just as one loved by God ought to speak. To be able to say things that are in harmony with the character of our God. That's not easy. It will require real care. And what's the result? A life that is lived all day long in the warmth of the awareness of God's delight. I am my beloved's. And he is mine. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just a great concept. I'm not even merely agreeing with print on the pages of the Bible. I have experienced an awareness of God's love for me today as I have walked in harmony. It's not sinless perfection. It's clinging to a Savior. Think about it. Start here. Study the life of Jesus of Nazareth and get better acquainted with his life than you are with anyone else. Study every detail in the Gospels. Study how Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude explain those details. Go back to the Old Testament. Ransack those chapters that you haven't read in a long time and see what they say about the life of the Messiah. And don't stop until you know his pattern. And then cry out to him. Christ, you have taught men and women and children how to walk with you, how to follow you on this path. I see your footsteps in front of me, but those are some, those are long strides. So take me by the hand, Savior, teach me. And see if what he said 2,000 years ago to those men who were about to lose him to the cross, see if it's not true still today. Let's pray. God, we plead with you for the glory of Jesus of Nazareth, and for the happiness of our souls, teach us how to walk as he walked, that we might enjoy the delight that you have for us in Christ. And our lives might be so full of joy that people who are strangers to the gospel would see us and be made jealous. Do it for his honor, we pray. Amen. When we say that God is love, we do have to be very careful because we have all sorts of ideas about what love is. Um, we live in a culture which may not think about things like holiness very much, but certainly thinks about love an awful lot. So we come to think about love with a full concept of what love is, but not necessarily a biblical concept of what love is. And it's very important that we engage in, in some kind of detox when we hear the statement, God is love, and we, we stop ourselves from importing into that statement all the things that the world tells us that love means. And we remember that God is not like us. 
Usually when people think in terms of the love of God, they tend to think more in terms of a grandfather who doesn't care how you live. It doesn't care the fact that you've been playing in the mud and consequently you can jump onto his clothes and, and just make him dirty and he's going, <laughs> yeah, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. That's what they then project onto God. It's, it's a frothy sentimentality. That's, that's all that is there. That for a thinking person doesn't give them genuine, solid comfort and assurance. On the other hand, if we can bring in true biblical teaching, what, what the Bible has told us about this God, that he, he hasn't simply overlooked our sin, but he has demonstrated his own love, as Romans 5 puts it, in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, to learn to think about the love of God with the gospel in mind, with the cross in mind, with God's way of salvation in mind, that there has been a propitiation for our sin, that God's wrath has been poured onto another as a substitute in my place. What that does, first of all, is it stops me from simply wanting to play with sin because I recognize it cost God his own son. So I will deliberately want to pursue holiness and my own sanctification. So that's one aspect. But at the same time, this is the beauty of it. I am not thinking that God's love for me depends on how holy I am because he has dealt with all things in the person of Christ. So I'm, I'm seeking to live the way he wants me to live out of gratitude for his grace and mercy towards me rather than out of wanting to earn the smile of God. He already loves me. Given the connection between the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ laying down his life for us, I think if, if I saw more of the love of God and how it took Jesus to the cross, then I think I would understand more of why I must take up my cross and follow him, that if he has done this, if these are the depths to which his love took him, well, then what would I not do and what would I not give? You know, in many ways, we sometimes think, you know, if you really want to expose your sinfulness, you need to read the law. And that is true. Um, but it's a very interesting thing in the Scriptures that there's also this emphasis that the real nature of sin is made manifest not against the background of words that condemn us, but against the background of the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And so, the whole of the Christian life is this, uh, is this paradox, really, uh, in which we, are, we enjoy the love of God in Jesus Christ for us. The more we realize how much we are loved, the more we are going to realize how sinful we are, 
And the more we realize how sinful we are, the more we seek his pardon, the more we discover his love, and uh, in a sense that process goes on and on uh, into uh, the day when set free from sin, uh, we're able to sense his love and respond to his love in eternity. As that finished, I just said, wow, wow. Beloved, because of his finished work on the cross, Jesus delights in you with the same love that the Father delights in him. Sit and consider that for a moment. How does that truth hit you? It should fuel our desire to love him and to live to please him as we were instructed this morning that we would get up in the morning and desire to do his will, to, to live in a love of Christ, that the fact that he delights in us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, what a refreshing and joyful truth. Lord, even as we heard the very beginning of this study from a quote from J.I. Packer, that knowing you, God, is heaven on earth, that, Lord, as we hear of your amazing love, we are comforted, we are filled with joy, that it is not dependent upon our performance, but based upon Christ's perfection. The fact that Christ would delight in us with the same love that you delight in him. Father, we are in awe this morning. Father, help us to think of this truth often and always. Help us to preach this truth to ourselves. That it would fuel our desire to do all things for the love of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.